0: podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Red Inca, which is part of the 99.94 Network. I'm Jared Kimber. This podcast has adverts, but if you prefer your podcast without, in the show notes you'll see the link to my Patreon page and you can listen to our chats uninterrupted. Patreon also comes with many other benefits as well, including a Discord channel and private chats with me. But now, the show. Today, we are going to be talking about women hitting in T20 because a lot of things have changed when it comes to women's cricket over the last couple of years. Obviously, things like professionalism and feuding standards and franchise cricket kind of taking over from international cricket. But for me, it's the hitting that I think is the most interesting. And I'm going to go back to a game of which, I must admit, I have talked about quite a bit. It's a game at the Oval in 2009, so it was during the World Cup, and they were doing a double header. So before the men's semi-final, which was Sri Lanka versus West Indies, that was the game where I think Angelo Matthews took 12 wickets in the first over, or at least it felt like that. Before that, the World Cup semi-final was played between Australia and England. I had really good seats for that game. We got there early so we could watch both games. Myself and my wife, we started watching. Until that point, I hadn't seen a lot of women's cricket since probably the 90s. And by that, I mean, in the late 90s, I was part of a cricket club that had a women's side and occasionally they would get me over to help coach and look after, especially some of the, the, the younger players, uh, you know, learning new techniques and, and, and simple things like that. So I'd kind of been ar- around women's cricket a little bit and occasionally when a game would come on TV, obviously you would watch it. But they weren't on TV, right? <laughs> that was the thing. It was very hard to find women's cricket at that point. It wasn't exactly accessible. You had to go and find it in random places. Suddenly, World Cup semi final, Australia versus England, and we're at the Oval, and Claire Taylor played an absolute, it's still one of the best innings I've ever seen because of how precise she was. And I've talked to Claire about this before, and she sort of let you know, laugh it off as just another innings. But to me, it wasn't that. And I was watching something really, really remarkable. But the way that she sliced Australia apart in that particular game was not through power hitting. It was actually just by hitting twos. And there's a few different layers to this. One, the oval was quite a big playing surface for England, and the ropes are out quite a long way. And it was a combination of kind of two things. Claire Taylor couldn't hit boundaries I'm, I'm not saying she would never hit boundaries but she wasn't a power player if you've never seen claire taylor play she had like a almost like a hockey grip. really interesting I'm trying to think maybe like an inverse ijaz ahmed you need to be in the 90s to remember that but you know maybe more towards the sort of grip that someone like steve smith might use these days slightly different than the normal style for sure So Claire Taylor had that kind of grip, but she was quite tiny, but incredibly skillful and very, very dogmatic. And she just kept picking the gaps and running too. She could run the twos because the ropes were out of fair way. The fielders in 2009 just didn't have the arms to be able to put the pressure on her. And so she could score it like two runs a ball. And that game's really, and i mentioned it a few times in my work, because it was the game that sort of really got me onto women's cricket because I was like, what is Australia doing? There were plenty of things they could have done to stop Claire Taylor in that particular game and change things. They just weren't aware enough of strategy. They didn't think about the fact that she wasn't probably going to hit the ball past the sweepers. The sweepers could have been in 20, 25 yards, angles, all sorts of things you could have done in that game. So I remember being really frustrated as an Australian fan, but it really did change the way I started to look at women's cricket, especially not long after that. It must have been 2012. It was the first time I covered women's cricket for Crick Info. And I covered it the same way I covered men's cricket, as in proper analysis, why did this player do this? It wasn't how women's cricket was covered at that stage at all. In fact, women's cricket was barely covered. It was mostly compared to the men's game and the players were mostly patronised. And I remember during that 2012 tournament, the Australian women weren't particularly happy (laughs) at the questions I was asking in press conferences, the articles I was writing, because it was in some ways, and I'm picking on the Australians because I think I wrote more articles on them, but in some ways it was because... I was the first person to kind of turn up and do that. And I think, you know, it was a bit weird. You go forward four years and you have the Mark Robinson era in England. So England lose the semi-final to West Indies. I think that's right, isn't it? In the 2016 World Cup. And, you know, the England women by that stage, it was already clear that they were perhaps falling slightly behind the Australians. So Giles Clark had decided that women's cricket was going to be a big thing under his chairmanship. And he sort of put a lot of money into a small group of women, which is how you get, you know, golden generations, right? It really is, because you, you can build that out, but it doesn't grow. And of course, you know, if you go back to, you know, Darte's seminal bit of analysis that no men's test team has ever been the same eleven more than twelve times, having fifteen or sixteen players who are at professional level and then everyone else who is not is not ideal. And I think that is what happened with that England team. But the other thing was that They weren't as fit as they probably should have been. There were certainly several players who looked like more amateur players at that point, despite the fact that it was professionalism. That for me, you know, having a coach call out his own team for being unfit. Men's cricket, it happens from time to time. We've certainly seen it before. It felt like a huge moment in women's cricket. So those are the two things that I remember really, really clearly from, from that sort of early period. And professionalism helps in a lot of that and so what mark robertson was really talking about was i think the england women were paid but remember they still came from an amateur kind of mindset where you know some of them probably still had other jobs they probably weren't working 40 hours a week on their cricket i'd argue a lot of men also don't but then again i've heard a lot of coaches moan about that as well and i think what he was saying is you know you need to get fitter you need to be more professional now i just want to bring up something when we talk about professionalism in cricket there's always like an outlier And if you go back and have a look at Dennis Lilly, Dennis Lilly's a perfect outlier of amateur cricket. He's playing for Australia when it's pretty much, you know, you have to have a day job and everything else. He's the world's number one bowler at a very, very young age, completely breaks through. And then because of the problems with his back, probably I would assume stress fractures, but certainly all the different problems he has with his back, he basically has to rebuild his own bowling on his own. Cricket Australia, the A C B at that time don't even really exist, like in that way. Their job is to pick from the eleven fittest players available to them at any one stage. So, some young fast bowler, even if he is perhaps you know the world's best player, I'm not saying he wouldn't get any extra treatment, but there was no system around the Australian team at that point. You either fit enough to play, or you won't play. So Dennis Lully, of course, goes off and you can get the Dennis Lully Fitness book with some extraordinary photos. I think if you Google Dennis Lully Fitness, uh, you'll see some extraordinary photos of Dennis Lully. And what what he does is he goes off and he rebuilds his body. He goes from probably being an amateur physically to a professional physically. He then learns a lot about biomechanics of bowling, which of course he then uses as a coach for generations afterwards. And then the third thing he did was upskilled himself. So the young Dennis Lilly is probably more of a fast bowler with uh, a little bit of sideways movement. The older Dennis Lilly is more like a refined machine, a bit more like someone like Jimmy Anderson who can kind of do any of the skills that were available at that time. Dennis Lilly probably could do them as good or if not better than anyone else. There's probably been players like that in women's cricket. I don't know of those kinds of situations off the top of my head, but someone like John Leather, hyper I'm sure would have stories of women who went off and became hyper-professionalized in the amateur era. But you don't get many in Dennis Lillis. And even in Dennis Lilly's case, I do think that he thought that he was at such a level that he would be able to, you know, make that money back one way or another through cricket, you know, through fame, through advertising or everything else. Whereas in women's cricket, that's even tougher. Elise Perry's probably one of the more interesting cases, I would say, in that she was obviously hyper-professional, even as an amateur. She was playing two sports, so her fitness and, and everything else was you know, quite diligent. But also, she was probably, again, a bit like Dennis Lea Breakout. It's all the players sort of below that level. They need professionalism in order to get good. And, you know, there's plenty of stories throughout the history of cricket that will tell you that as money has come into certain areas, teams have got better. It's not an accident, right? (laughs) And so to go back to the women's game, that professionalism movement certainly has had an impact. And I'll talk about why specifically in a bit. But the other thing with women's cricket, and I probably was part of this problem when I was coaching with women, is that. I talked to a former international player who coaches boys and girls. So I think he coaches up to the age of 18, doesn't do any major stuff. And it's school kids. I don't think he's at an advanced academy. I think he's got a good junior team, but he's not one of these people who's producing first class cricketer after first class cricketer. He's just at a school level coaching boys and girls. And I was chatting to him about the differences. And he was just like, coaching girls is so much easier because you tell a girl, okay, what you need to do now is you need to lead with your front shoulder, get your elbow up, Keep your hands together on the bat and come through. And they have these beautiful swings through the ball. And then you tell the boy, and he listens, and then he nods his head and he's really excited. And he goes out there and he swats at the first one with a crossbat slog. And you go back and you tell him again and again. And you have a look at this girl and she can do exactly what you want. And this boy just doesn't listen. And since I was told that, I've watched a lot of uh, you know, my kids are obviously playing cricket, and there's a lot of boys and girls involved in that. And you do watch how often the girls come out with really good techniques, and the boys are just smacking it everywhere with sometimes dog shit ordinary (laughs) methods. And that kept flowing up the game. And that was one of the first things I was told. And I wasn't told it from a a girl perspective. I was told it from a woman perspective that when a lot of the male coaches came in specifically, the women could all ball seam up perfectly. I mean, they had brilliant techniques. I mean, Masali Raj might be one of the most famous examples of this. During most of her career, you would argue she had the best handbook technique, as in it would go straight in the MCC guide, it was absolutely perfect. But also, if you watch Mitali Raj, she couldn't really pierce the field brilliantly, you know. And it was because, you know, she had this, what we would call in Australia, a Terry Test match technique, which is, you know, it looks perfect, but you never hit the ball past cover, mid wicket, mid on, mid off, because everything you're hitting straight. And I think there's, you have a look, there's a lot of women doing that. And part of it, I think, goes back to when the girls listen to the coaching a lot better than boys do. But then there was this other disconnect in women's cricket, which was, they were taught the very basics and how to perfect the basics but women's cricket was really really vanilla there was wasn't as much improvisation there wasn't as much coloring outside the lines new trends in men's cricket weren't going through to women's cricket even things as simple as you know women weren't bowling cross scene deliveries in the middle overs and you know, women spinners weren't dropping their arms intentionally when the ball got soft. And all those sorts of things that had been happening in men's cricket hadn't been passed along. And what I heard was that the old women's coaches were very, very fundamentals based. And when the men's coaches started to come across, so players who played professionally in the men's game were coming across, or even people who coached professionally in the men's game who are now coaching the women were much more like giving them the little shibboleths of cricket, you know, the the little things that men were taught and for some reason women weren't. And that obviously opened up the women's game quite a bit as well. And so what started to happen then was you had men coaches come in and they would start to say to these women, just whack it. (laughs) Stop trying to look good and whack it. And that is a huge difference. It's not that the fundamental balance of technique doesn't matter in cricket because we obviously know it does, but allowing a lot of high quality batters and some high quality athletes in the women's game to suddenly have that freedom, I think was another big change in it. And you started to get more non-traditional techniques so before someone like Claire taylor was probably more of an outlier whereas now i think there are more women in the play that have you know sort of non-traditional bowling actions you know sort of more i don't know what you'd say almost muscular bowling actions whereas before you had more players like sort of isha guha who looked really really highly coached and now it's a little bit more natural the sort of players that are coming through to go on from that this is all about the batting right and hitting you know, I've talked about the professionalism and the coaching, but the other thing is just the hitting change. So I did this, I'm trying. I'm not trying to work out what I had this stat for, but it must have been 2017 World Cup. So I must have written this in 2018. So Alex Blackwell had played 144 ODIs since her debut. And in that time, she hit eight sixes. And I was at the uh, 2017 World Cup semi final when she smacked three in that game. And When I say smack sixes, I think a lot of times in women's cricket, people say, oh, yeah, but, you know, small ropes, whatever. She actually clanged balls off the Derby press box. (laughs) If I wanted a more physical representation of what women's cricket was doing, I could literally, you know, feel the vibration as the ball smacked in to the box. So it was really, really clear. And it wasn't long after that I was covering a Melbourne Stars game. I'm trying to remember who they were playing. I think it was the Renegades. At Melbourne, obviously, because they're both Melbourne teams, I think it was Renegades anyway. And it was also, it was interesting, I, I thinking back on it, I think it was one of the first times but I'd been sent to the ground to cover a women's game, and there was a men's game on, and no one was expecting it. So you could see how much by 2018 things were changing, even within the media. And because I was you know writing so much about that game, I got a lot of access. So I think the Stars coach at that point was David Hemp, who played for Glamorgan and Bermuda. And... I just sort of cornered him out on the ground. They let me roam around for free out on the ground with my process accreditation. Again, something the men don't allow just as much. And and I sort of said to him, just explain to me step-by-step why women are hitting the ball further. And his first thing was, he said that the women were now backing themselves to have a go at it. And I know that sounds really, really silly you know, because women in previous generations could have, but the T20 boom, and then the understanding of the biomechanics of hitting boom, obviously come through men's cricket where all the money is. It took a little bit longer to hit the women's game. And even little things like something that David Hemp told me, was they weren't doing a lot of range hitting before. And range hitting is the sort of thing you do more as a professional because it's an add-on, right? Like the first thing you have to do is probably go in the nets, face all the net bowlers, you know, face a couple of your bowlers. There's your big long batting stint. Then you get a batting coach to throw balls to you in the other net. Then you go and do your fielding. If you're an amateur, that's already, you know, two and a half, three hours of your time. To then set up range hitting, which usually you have to do after because it's when the ground is completely clear, women weren't always even getting access to completely clear grounds. Sometimes they were, you know, being trained on the same grounds that, you know, men's sides were being trained on. Other times they would get nets, but they wouldn't get access to the ground. So just having the ability to be told that they could go for it and then have range hitting was absolutely a huge thing. So that was one thing. The other thing he mentioned to me was the gym sessions. And I understood the professional nature of cricket and the amateur nature and what was different, but I hadn't actually factored in what that means in a normal week. And I should have because I know what it was like to be a professional writer and an amateur writer. So if I'm an amateur writer, I go and I work in a call center for you know nine or ten hours a day. I then come home, I grab something to eat quickly, and then I try and belt out, you know, a thousand or two thousand words. And obviously, even when I'm in the best headspace possible. Some nights that doesn't work. Sometimes I don't get to do it as much as I want. Other nights it's my free time. I might have to go and do something else with a girlfriend or my family or my friends or whatever that may be. And so I'm lucky if I get three good, you know, writing sessions after work a week. If you're a amateur woman's cricketer, you can be one of the best players in the world. If you've still got a day job as well, you've still got to fit in your training and now your gym work outside of that. And what he was saying is that the more I don't know professionals wrong but you know the more ambitious women were you know going to the gym three four times a week but they were also training three and four times a week and they were working 40 hours a week you cannot do it correctly whereas once they start to go professional It's a huge difference because now they can fit in way more training sessions and they're not doing it at the end of a busy day or at the start of a busy day. They're doing it in the middle of the day when they're fine and it fits their timetable and they'll maybe gym in the morning and cricket training in the afternoon or the other way. And they could still have plenty of time outside of that. So they got a lot fitter. They got a lot stronger and now they're starting to hit the ball everywhere. One of the other things he mentioned is bats and I remember talking to bat manufacturers around 2008, 2009. They were trying to work out the women's bat market. So at that point, a lot of women were using bats that were actually kids' bats, so harrow bats. That's another reason why they weren't hitting the ball particularly hard. And the reason was when they got to the other bats, they were a little bit too heavy or a little bit too clunky, or sometimes the grips, well, not the grip, but the the handle was a bit wide. And so the best bats were the ones with the skinnier handles that they could get their hands around, which meant that quite often the quality of wood was obviously far less. And it meant that standing in your crease and biffing the ball didn't work. There's been a big revolution in women's bats over the last little while. And as it becomes more professional, of course, bat manufacturers now have sponsors. A lot of national boards, you know, get your bats in. It's still an issue and it's certainly still an issue for developing players coming through. But you are now definitely seeing that, uh, you know, women have access to much better pieces of wood. And, and again... Anyone who's ever used a harrow bat and an adult bat knows the difference. You know, when you're a young boy coming through, that's the thing you want to move on from, right? (laughs) One stage you're struggling to hit the ball past long off and then you get an adult bat and suddenly, you know, you can hit on the up for six. Like there's just a huge difference in the way that those things go about. And that really, really did change everything. And I think then you have players like Lizelle Lee who, look, Lizelle Lee, If professionalism never came, if T20 never came, she still would have been one of the hardest-hitting women of any generation that she played in. The difference was for her that she was then specifically looked at as a power hitter. She was then paid to be a power hitter. She developed it. And Lizelle Lee, I don't know if we have the distances that women have hit the ball, but for me, there's no woman I've ever seen who hits the ball anywhere near as consistently hard as she does. There might be women who have hit the ball further in World Cups and, and certain tournaments, But I remember covering in the 2017 World Cup, I think she was playing against Pakistan, and they weren't a particularly good team. They've they've improved a lot as a women's side over the last couple of years. And Lizelle Lee took it a little bit as hitting practice, I think. But it was at Leicester. And Leicester, if you've never been there, it's just a phenomenally big grounds. It's funny, I think we think of England grounds as small, but there's some big grounds in England as well. And I would certainly say that Leicester is one of them. Someone told me once that I had the same playing surface size as the MCG. And Lizelle Lee was covering you know, the ground. She hit the ball out of the ground. Forget the ropes and everything else. She was clearing the boundaries by a very, very long way. I've also seen Lizelle Lee, might have been in that same game I was talking about before, clear the boundary at the MCG as well. So the fence. I keep saying the boundary. The fence is what I mean. She cleared the Leicester fence at Grace Road and the MCG fence. That sort of play out. I think beforehand, as I said, I think she'd still be a hard-hitting player, but the difference is now that she's really developing in a very, very modern T20 way. In some ways, it came against her as well, because you know she's become a power hitter right at the time that professionalism has come in, and she left South Africa partly because they said she wasn't fit enough. And She's probably not fit enough to run really good twos and cover ground in the field, but she's definitely fit enough to stand in her crease and biff sixes. And That's obviously a different kind of fitness and probably a different kind of episode going ahead in the future, but it's very, very interesting, that development, that we get our first power hitter and she has to leave her national team because of that. Just to go back to the start, I think one of the more interesting things for me is that going back to 2009, there are three things of women's cricket that I think were... In some ways, they made it a really, really different game than the men's. And a bit like women's basketball, it's one reason I used to love watching women's basketball is because of how tactical women's basketball had to be. Whereas the men's game, especially in the NBA in the 90s and 2000s, was so isolation. You just give it to one really good athlete and he'd do a bunch of moves and get the ball in. Whereas you watch women's basketball and everyone had to be moving and the screens had to be better and you know the cutting had to be better because otherwise you, you weren't going to be able to out-athlete other players. When I first started women's cricket, I think it was a lot more like that. And you know, you will watch Susie Bates and you'd be like, she's a tactical genius. Susie Bates saw the game and still sees the game in a way that other people just. Do not, and it was really, really apparent. And then watching a, a a woman's bowler have to work out how to get a wicket was a very, very different situation than watching a male bowler do it because they couldn't blast through with the pace in the same way. You know, they couldn't use bounce or lift in the same way. They weren't getting the same revolutions on the ball. It was almost like a more of a chess game. It was really, really interesting, but it's clearly changed now. The three things that I always saw back in that 2009 game that was so interesting is that women really struggled to throw i would say that that is the one that has been fixed the quickest women now just throw the ball so much better than they ever have before and you know the old idea of just running two every time you hit it out to the sweeper it's just it's gone i'm not saying there aren't women with bad arms there clearly are still men with bad arms and men who are bad sweeper fielders as well but that is the, the part of the game that has changed the most the part of the game i think has changed the least is probably still pace bowling i do think that for me, just that extra little bit of pace hasn't happened. We have seen bowlers like Annabelle Sutherland come in, who obviously extract a lot of bounce. I think the more it becomes an athlete game and less of that chess game that I was talking about before, I think you know maybe pace bowling will be looked at there. But the third one is the hitting, and you do see a lot of boundaries now. I think it was 2018 or 2019, I was at a women's big bash game, and Harman Prickor hit an off spinner for six over cover. It's just an unthinkable thing to imagine. I mean, that shot was unthinkable 15 years ago in men's cricket. In women's cricket, it's not even unthinkable. It's not a conversation that you would have. It's it's not something that would even be mentioned briefly. And so you can tell how much that power hitting has changed. And really interesting to see if there is going to be a big pace bowling boom in the next, let's say, 5 to 15 years of women's cricket. But the power hitting... And the ability to hit sixes and fours, and the ability for those players to take on fielders on the rope. I mean, I was at the Harman Court game, uh, the World Cup semi final in a derby where she just kept taking fielders on on the boundary. That was in 2017. And we know now. I, I remember watching the CPL, you know, and some of the women who were hitting in the CPL. One of my sons got absolutely obsessed with some of uh, the hitting because he was just watching people stand in their crease and slogging. That's not the women's cricket I grew up with. But for him, that was like, oh, this is great. Look at her. She can smack this ball anywhere she wants. And I think it does show you just how much it is developed. And so this is the first World Cup where professionalism now, we have, you know, through Fairbreak, now with the women's IPL coming up, you know, with 100, with the Big Bash, with the CPL, with the PSL potentially coming forward. Maybe perhaps competitions like in South Africa, Major League Cricket, also looking at women's cricket. This is that first tournament where we're really... I think almost at the, I wouldn't call it the professional tournament because I don't think we're quite there yet, but we're certainly housing elements of the professional cricket that we definitely hadn't seen before all coming together. And if you don't believe me, have a look at how hard some of these women are going to hit the ball in this tournament. Thanks for listening to Red Inca on 99.94. For more information about us, go to 99.94dm.com. Remember to download our app or just search for West Indies, India, England, South Africa and Sri Lanka with the search term 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. If you can't help out on Patreon, every single review, share or word of mouth suggestion to your friend helps us. However, this podcast is made available by the people who support us at Patreon, so thank you to all of those who do. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes the best audio anyone can from random Zoom calls. We also have a great support team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia, and Meda Akam producing some of the shows and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. Our theme tune is by The Red Cricket.